From Bloomberg Law, you're listening to Uncommon Law. I'm Adam Allington. The prosecution wrapped up its case in the murder trial of Derek Chauvin on Monday. With just over two weeks, the jury heard extensive testimony about George Floyd's health problems and struggles with drug addiction. But thanks to an obscure legal doctrine, the jury was also allowed to hear testimony aimed at humanizing George Floyd. It's permissible under the so-called Spark of Life doctrine, which Judge Cahill asked Prosecutor Matt Frank to expand on last March when the court was still in jury selection. So, uh, Ms. Frank, why don't you come on up and give me an idea of what you anticipate your Spark of Life testimony would be. The appellate courts have recognized a long list of, of things that are appropriate to cover in Spark of Life, photographs, um, testimony about um, their childhood. On Monday, George Floyd's younger brother, Felonis Floyd, took the stand to give his Spark of Life testimony. Sir, would you please describe uh, this photo and what you know about it? As my mother, she's no longer with us right now, but that's, that's my oldest brother, George. I miss both of them. Well, going back to growing up in the, in, the, in the CUNY homes, can you please tell the jury what role um, George Floyd had as, a, as the older brother in that household? He was so much of a, a leader to us in the household. He would always make sure that we had our clothes for school. He made sure that we all were going to be um, to school on time. And like I told you, George couldn't cook, but he'll make sure you have a snack or something to get in the morning. So to hear these kinds of personal reflections and stories during the evidentiary phase of a trial is unusual. That's because whether George Floyd was a good brother or liked to play basketball or if he made snacks for his siblings, none of that has any bearing on whether Derek Chauvin committed a crime. And to be clear, it's not supposed to. So why is it allowed? With me here to shed some light on Minnesota's Spark of Life doctrine and where it comes from is Ted Samsel-Jones, a professor at the Mitchell Hamlin School of Law in St. Paul, Minnesota. Professor Jones, I think it's fair to say that a lot of attorneys, even ones who practice criminal law, hadn't heard of this spark of life doctrine before the Chauvin trial. So what is it? Yeah, and it makes sense that people haven't heard of it because Minnesota is atypical and probably even unique in this regard. The idea of spark of life testimony is it gives the prosecution a chance to tell a little bit about the victim's sort of life and background from a very personal perspective in ways that has nothing to do with the charged incident in question. And where did this doctrine come from, Ted? Has it been around for a while? It's been around in Minnesota for a few decades. It was kind of an invention in the mid-80s by the Minnesota Supreme Court. And it was just one of those things where there was a, you know, just a random case where like, the prosecutor choked up when talking about the victim in the course of giving opening or closing arguments and the defendant appealed that and said it was inappropriate. And the Minnesota Supreme Court said that was okay, and it's okay to discuss, they use this phrase, spark of life when referring to the victim. And then it just kind of from there blossomed into this doctrine that allows much more than that as well. Now, it's not entirely unheard of to hear these kinds of personal and emotional testimony from the loved ones of a victim. 
but it usually comes after the jury's rendered a decision during sentencing. They're called victim impact statements. But to hear this kind of testimony during the evidence phase, doesn't that risk prejudicing a jury? Absolutely. It's controversial in that it violates, I think, two foundational principles of, of evidence law. The first is literally evidence 101. It's the thing we start with in evidence class the first day when I, when I teach law students about evidence law, is that evidence has to be relevant to be admissible. And relevance means shedding some light on an element of the offense. And of course, Spark of Life doesn't do that because it doesn't shed any light on whether, for example, Chauvin caused Floyd's death or whether he used unreasonable force. So it's really not relevant in, the, relevant in the usual sense. Second, it also probably violates the character evidence rule, which means we don't put in evidence really of either the defendant's past or the victim's past subject to only certain exceptions. And so it kind of conflicts with the character evidence rule as well. So yes, it's controversial. It's not something that is really consistent, frankly, with the Minnesota rules of evidence. Are there any other states that have something similar to the Spark of Life doctrine? I've never seen any other state that has anything remotely to the same extent of Minnesota. Now, of, of course, sometimes it comes up in background. You know, a witness will be, if you'll be asking a witness, you know, how did you know the victim? And the witness might say, well, we went to high school together and played football together or something. So, of course, that kind of thing can come up. But Minnesota really allows this evidence in for the purpose of kind of humanizing and making the jury more sympathetic to the victim, which is not something that other states allow. On the one hand, this sounds like a noble intent, right? The desire to humanize a person. But I guess that also depends on your point of view. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this case is, is unusual because, right, all of our political sympathies are kind of flipped here. Um, you know, in think of the ordinary case, you know, set aside Chauvin, you know, this is something that prosecutors use in a lot of cases um, really as kind of, I mean, call it a little bit of a cheat to make the jury emotional, make the jury very sympathetic about the victim. And that might be unduly prejudicial to the defendant in some cases. And that's why it's been controversial, why, you know, the state public defenders here have been fighting this doctrine ever since it came into existence. You know, in this case, a lot of people are kind of happy that the prosecution is able to do this move. But in the ordinary case, it's something that really, you know, it works against all kinds of defendants, whether you're kind of sympathetic with the defendants or not. So if I understand your main critique here, it's that spark of life doesn't speak to the central question. That is, whether or not Derek Chauvin committed a crime. Exactly right. I mean, think of there's really two issues. There's really two elements that are at issue in this case. One is, did Derek Chauvin cause George Floyd's death? And that's kind of going to be probably the central thing the defense is disputing. And the second is, was his use of force reasonable um, and sort of... or put differently, whether he was intending to hurt him as opposed to just using reasonable force. And the fact that, you know, George Floyd's brother will talk a little bit about him growing up and what a kind person he was, that really doesn't shed any light on either of those two disputes. But there are some limits on Spark of Life testimony. Here again is Judge Cahill addressing what kind of testimony he wouldn't allow back in March. I'm not allowing a lot of the past that would amount to character evidence. And I'm specifically concerned here about, it may be true, I'm not saying this, but you know that Mr. Floyd was described as a gentle giant. As soon as you start getting into propensity for violence or propensity for peacefulness, I think then we're getting into character evidence. And then that does open the door for the defense to cross-examine about his character for peacefulness. Everything else, how he grew up, some pictures, 
that he was loved, that he was a wonderful father, brother, nephew. All that stuff, I think, is permissible. So, Professor, it does sound like there is some amount of risk here as well. If the prosecution tries to humanize Floyd in a way that would open the door for the defense to challenge those statements. Yeah, there's always this concept in evidence law of opening the door. And that means when one party does something, they open the door to additional evidence from the other side. So it's kind of like when you make one point, the other side gets an opportunity to rebut that point. So if you, the prosecution, say he's generally a nonviolent character, then I have to allow the defense to say, well, wait a bit about what, what about his criminal conviction for home invasion? Right? That shows that he's not a nonviolent character. So you can't like make that point without giving the defense an opportunity to respond. So what Judge Cahill said is, don't make that point. Right? Don't say that Floyd is generally nonviolent. You can talk about his life a little bit. You can talk about how much you loved him. You can talk about his smile, but do not go down the road of talking about violence or other topics that might allow the defense to respond with contrary evidence. Earlier in the trial, we also heard Spark of Life testimony from Floyd's girlfriend, Courtney Ross, who talked about how she and Floyd first met, as well as their shared addiction to opioids. We both suffered from chronic pain. We got addicted and and tried really hard to uh, break that addiction many times. So Ted, is there a chance that any of this Spark of Life testimony could give Chauvin an issue to raise on appeal? Yeah, I mean, I think it, there's a good chance that it will be one of his claims on appeal. I mean, you think, you know, what part of what Chauvin's attorney are trying to do now is set up issues for appeal. Um, so there's no, you know, they're probably going to lose. And if they lose, they are certainly going to appeal. And so they need to have a bunch of issues for appeal. Once they lose, kind of the process as an appeals lawyer is to say, you know, say, what are my three or four or five best issues for appeal? And yeah, they might decide that the admission of spark of life evidence is one of their issues for appeal. Um, I don't think it would be their top issue, but it'd be maybe one of their top five. So then they would appeal it. I mean, the odds of that succeeding on appeal are near zero, but that doesn't mean they won't give it a shot. Well, since you bring it up, if you were on the defense team in this case, what issues do you think present the strongest case for appeal? Well, the one big wild card still has to do with third degree murder, and that depends on what the Minnesota Supreme Court does in the Noor case. For those who don't know, Mohammed Noor was another Minneapolis police officer convicted of third degree murder for the accidental shooting of a woman in 2019. And it's this, the same kind of legal issue about the meaning of third degree murder is present in the Noor case, which is still pending in the Minnesota Supreme Court and also in Chauvin. So if in some crazy world, Chauvin was not convicted of second degree murder, but then was convicted of third degree murder, and then the Supreme Court decides in Noor's favor in that other case, then that's going to give Chauvin an absolute killer issue for appeal and would mean he would get all the way down to manslaughter, which would really be a good result for the defense. So I'd say that's kind of the top thing, but that's uncertain. And if Chauvin is convicted of second degree murder, that wouldn't make any difference. You know, I'd say the second issue, I would say, is just all the questions about pretrial publicity and jury placement. So there's no question that they will appeal things like the trial should have been moved to another city, the trial should have been delayed based on the publicity. The trial should have been delayed. All these things about, you know, the Minneapolis City Council press conference, the riots last night. I mean, he again, you know, Chauvin's attorney raised that again this morning about the about the shooting and the publicity and the riots last night. 
all of those things are aimed at showing that this was a biased jury. So I would say that's almost certain to be one of their top couple issues for appeal. Once again, the odds of that working are, you know, <laughs> low, but they, they, they will be things that will be appealed. Ted Samsel Jones is a professor at the Mitchell Hamlin School of Law. Professor, thanks again for your time. Happy to do it. Talk to you soon. Despite being somewhat controversial, others say there are important legal reasons for Spark of Life testimony. Lee Merritt, an attorney for the Floyd family, told ABC News that Spark of Life is a way to remind jurors of the personal impacts on a person who was treated so unfortunately by the system. Very often in these cases, uh, historically, we we begin to dehumanize the victim. When Rodney King was the the victim of uh, the famous incident of police brutality in Los Angeles, seeing that video over and over again desensitized the public and often the jury pool. Similarly, George Floyd has become a hashtag. He's become a rallying cry. Uh, But the family wants the jury to know that he was a person, that his life had value, that family members relied on him. And uh, how that evidence comes in is going to be very, very important to this family. Probably, again, more important to this family than any other uh, aspect of the case. And that is where we're going to leave the discussion for today. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Marissa Horn. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Coming up later in the week, we'll have more analysis of the defense testimony, including a profile of Eric Nelson, Derek Chauvin's attorney. Thanks for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Briar Watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, Citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.